Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and we're coming to you from AJT Highlights. Happy New Year. Happy 2023, everybody. And as always, uh, joined by Roz Manon from University of Nebraska Medical Center. And this month, our editorial fellow, Dr. Zach Yetmar, who is currently a transplant ID fellow at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester and will be joining the Cleveland Clinic Group next year. Welcome, everybody. So we have five papers, which seems like a lot, but a couple of them are pretty short in terms of discussion. We'll start off with two of Zach's papers. The first one is BK DNAemia and native kidney polyomavirus nephropathy following lung transplantation by Dubé et al. And then mortality among solid organ transplant recipients with pre-transplant cancer diagnosis by Hart et al., So Zach will review those. And then Roz will review, does anybody really know what the kidney median waiting time is by Stewart et al.? And then the honoring the gift, the transformative potential of transplant decline human organs by Albert et al. Then I'll finish this off with the uh, recommendations from the ASTS on best practices in donation after circulatory death organ procurement by Kroom et al. So let's uh, take it away, Zach. We can start off with your BK virus uh, initial paper. Welcome. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, so so this was an initial paper uh, looking at... Uh, BK virus, DNAemia, uh, as well as subsequent outcomes in uh, patients that have undergone lung transplantation. And this is a really exciting paper to look at because really the, the kidney transplant population takes, uh, understandably takes a lot of the focus for BK virus. And this hasn't been as extensively studied for other transplant populations. They looked at a, they looked at a 17 year period of their centers, lung transplant recipients, people that had at least 90 days survival without requiring hemodialysis. And uh, they were looking at people who either did or did not develop BK viremia. Uh, and then among those who did develop viremia, looking at people that had high viral loads, i.e. more than 10,000 copies or less than that threshold and looking at differences in outcomes. One important note is that testing for BK virus, they didn't have a standard protocol for this. It was really at the discretion of the physicians seeing these patients. Um, but after with their criteria, they had 878 patients, 343 or about 39% had at least one BK virus uh, test in the blood. And 56 of those had a positive test, which was about 6% of the total group, and then about 16% of those people that were tested. The patients that were positive were noted to be positive about 30 months after transplant. That's that's notable because that's uh, quite a ways out from where we typically see BK virus in the kidney transplant population. When they were looking at people that did or did not develop viremia, total of 9% of them over the whole follow-up, which is about five years for the most part, developed ESRD. But that was 18% versus 8% in people that we had viremia versus without. So a lot more people with BK viremia needed dialysis later on, but really no significant difference in mortality. When they were looking between the high and low viremia thresholds, which was 10,000, 18 or 32% of those folks had a high viral load. They had similar time after transplant, but the people that had high viral loads had much higher rates of ESRD, 39%, which was only about 8% in the people that did not develop, or that did not have high viral loads. 
Overall, these, these patients had pretty similar immunosuppression, pretty similar rates of other complications. So they, they didn't really identify a clear reason why certain people were getting these higher viral loads. And then finally, they looked at biopsies in these patients, which only 11 patients um, underwent biopsy, uh, but these had different ranges, usually pretty mild tubulitis, but higher BAMF classification. Out of the people that needed kidney biopsies, most of the people with a high viral load developed nephropathy, whereas the people with low viral loads, there were only two of them, but uh, none of those people developed BK nephropathy. Overall, of the patients that developed true BK nephropathy on biopsy, there were a lot of changes to immunosuppression, either reducing mycophenolate or stopping mycophenolate, changing from tacrolimus to cyclosporin or changing from a calcineur inhibitor to serolimus. And t 10 of the 11 people had some kind of adjunctive therapy, IVIG, cytophavir, things along those lines. But it didn't really seem like those with the small sample size didn't seem like those really made a whole lot of a difference in, in the course. Only one patient with nephropathy had sustained clearance. But the other side of that, only one of those patients had developed presumed rejection requiring treatment, and patients overall really didn't have significant changes in their pulmonary function testing. So it seemed, at least based on this information, that those changes in the immunosuppression were safe to do. So overall, this was, an again, an interesting study because there's really not much data outside of the kidney transplant population and specifically not much data in the lung transplant population. It's, it's interesting because it really tells us that this is a problem that happens in these patients within the, the, with the, it, out of the total group, again, 6% had viremia and 16% of those tested had viremia. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle if everyone underwent systematic testing, but that's still a fair bit of patients uh, and still tells us, you know, a lot of patients may at certain points develop progressive renal disease and sometimes it's kind of presumed calcineur inhibitor, but it's good to keep this on the mind. And this is a good start for future research that can look into this in a more systematic fashion of, okay, what's the true uh, prevalence of this issue within the lung transplant or other non-kidney transplant populations? And kind of when does this happen and who should this be suspected in? I think for right now, this would be a good consideration for lung transplant recipients who have progressive renal function or seem to be heading to ESRD. Maybe even just getting this test at some point may be a, an important consideration. So I, I think this is a great start to future research and kind of brings this issue to light because I, I think at least here at our center, uh, we don't routinely check for this. Uh, I'm sure some people do in the setting of progressive renal dysfunction. I guess I'd be curious what you guys think, Roz, you're, um, you see obviously a lot of kidney transplant patients. What's based on your experience in that population? What was your impression from this paper? So I want to say that I think the rates of viremia are higher, but that's a lot of historical data from Hans Hirsch in the Swiss group where he was doing prospect, those some of the original reports in like the early 2000s. But I would say that most transplant programs now tacitly check and monitor routinely BKPCR for kidney transplants, some debate urine being more accessible and, and you know, Oh, well, and the problem with the urine, I think, is I think you get a lot of positives that don't, that are just shedding a virus or, or turnover and it's, it's not pathologic. So I found this interesting. I wondered, you know, I, I remember 
back in my uh, older days where you'd sometimes see BK and adeno in, in hepato, you know, hematopoietic stem cell transplant where you'd get this gross hematuria. But it sounds like here this was a, essentially asymptomatic uh, viremia other than graft, dis, you know, kidney, not graft, kidney dysfunction per se. So I think it's important. Did they did they mention Zach any risk factors for those individuals developing high high level BK viremia? It didn't seem like there was much that was necessarily identified. Again, relatively low numbers. The immunosuppression was relatively similar. There was a little bit of a difference in azathioprine use. You know, more people with high viremia had more kidney biopsies, but that's more of a, a result of the issue than a cause of it. So I don't think there was much that was necessarily identified there. A few things that seemed very similar, like the time from transplant to BK virus detection. But really, the bigger the bigger takeaway for me was the marked difference in outcomes over a third of patients right. with high viral loads developing ESRD versus only 8% of those with lower viral loads. I imagine then, that it's... Uh, no, I was just going to say, I imagine that you know lung transplants are amongst the most heavily immunosuppressed. So that could be why they're finding a correlation here because um, we, we might not find that like in, say, liver transplant where our immunosuppression is a lot lower. Although I don't think, uh, I don't recall, I remember looking this up once because I was curious if it had been done outside of the kidney transplant setting and in, in or, solid organ transplant. And I, this might be the first paper that has looked at it more extensively outside of the, the kidney itself. So, yeah, now I, you wonder if this is could be used kind of as an immune monitoring test. I guess way. the only, yeah. my only comment about that is that it's so late, like in, in yeah. kidney, we see this as an early disease, like within True. the first year frequently. And when you see it late, you used to self-doubt, oh, did we miss it? Is it that really? But but this was what, almost almost more than two years, almost three years out. So again, what would be the monitoring? And, and is that just a reflection of a retrospective study and we need a prospective to sort of see maybe they overlooked people mm -hmm. and maybe they were positive earlier and they didn't realize it because the they looked at 2003. So I would say historically, we probably weren't really doing much BK, though the disease had been described in the late 90s. We probably didn't really start thinking about monitoring. Getting PCRs was difficult. I mean, we, I remember spitting urines at the NIH and looking at viral part, you know, looking at atypical tubular epithelium and doing EMs and stuff like that had been recommended by the UNC pathology group. So very interesting. Seth. Yeah, yeah, Great yeah, paper. absolutely. It makes makes you want to do more studies and uh, <laughs> yeah. the organ transplant population. Yeah, and your free time and your spare time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it makes you wonder what they would find if they had a standard protocol screening people, you know, at certain standard intervals. Maybe it would be earlier. Maybe you'd find, I'm sure you would find more cases, though. They, I suspect they found some of the most clinically significant. But yeah, certainly a great jumping point to really motivate future research in this. And, and, and the other difference, perhaps, with kidney is that the kidney, the urepithelium is the source of this virus. And so I could imagine that if someone were BK naive and they got a BK positive, you know, non-naive kidney and a kidney where it was lying in state, so to speak, and then you immunosuppress, that may be why we see much more viral shedding early in the urine. But again, it'd be interesting. I'm sort of curious now. Great. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the 
the cancer paper, pre-transplant cancer. Yeah, so this was another interesting paper and certainly a lot to digest here. So this this was a large analysis that included the Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients, or SRTR, and they linked that database to multiple state and regional cancer registries, I think 33 registries in total, looking from largely from 1995 to 2017 at people trying to see, is there a link between having a diagnosis of cancer before transplant and specific outcomes after transplant, namely all-cause mortality, cancer-specific mortality, and occurrence of post-transplant cancer, either altogether or with a similar type of cancer to what their pre-transplant cancer was. They had they had people undergoing their first transplant had to have at least five years of coverage prior to transplant. And, and importantly, they, they didn't look at people who they felt may have had the transplant as part of their cancer treatment, specifically people that had liver transplants um, and had a history of colorectal or hepatobiliary cancer. They were largely looking at differences between having no pre-transplant cancer, one cancer diagnosis, or two or more transplant pre two or more pre-transplant cancer diagnoses. So overall, they had a very large cohort on the basis of this registry, over 300,000 transplant recipients included, 11,000 of which had one pre-transplant cancer and uh, 1,200 had two or more pre-transplant cancers. The proportion of people who had pre-transplant cancers seemed to go up over time. At the beginning of the study, it was about 2%. Now in the in the Getting up to 2017, uh, it was over 5%. As you would um, expect, some of the most common transplants um, were kidneys um, and livers, among others. And the median time from, for the people who had pre-transplant cancer, median time from uh, cancer diagnosis to transplant was a, five, a little over five years. And most commonly, um, renal cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer, uh, things along those lines. So, when they were looking at first post-transplant mortality, and this is all-cause mortality, they did find an association between pre-transplant cancer diagnosis and mortality, and that was seemed to have a relatively similar effect if you had one or two or more pre-transplant cancers. However, that they did look at this at different points in time, and it seemed like the more time from transplant, um, the higher the effect of the pre-transplant cancer seemed to be. When they were looking at cancer-specific mortality, it was a similar story. One pre-transplant cancer or two or more were both associated with higher cancer-specific post-transplant mortality, um, though this time two or more cancers had a little bit of higher effect there. When they were looking at people with just one pre-transplant cancer having a more advanced stage of cancer, before transplant seem to be associated with higher cancer-specific mortality, which I, I think makes sense in a lot of ways, trying to put a link between pre-transplant cancer and recurrence after transplant of that cancer. And it seemed like uh, myeloma and lung cancer had the highest risk in that regard. And another interesting finding was if you had less than two years from your pre-transplant cancer to transplant, that seemed to be the highest risk interval. Having a longer time in between seemed to attenuate that risk somewhat. And I thought that was an interesting finding, too, because it's really, again, kind of demonstrating the theory that 
if you if it's been a longer time from your pre-transplant cancer, it's probably less likely to recur. And when they were looking at post-transplant cancer occurrence, almost 10% of patients had at least one post-transplant cancer. And having a pre-transplant cancer was, again, associated with post-transplant cancer. However, these weren't necessarily the same cancers uh, between the pre and the post, but they, they estimated about a third seemed to line up at least with a similar type of cancer. The main risk factors that stood out for the pre, the post-transplant uh, cancer occurrence was having a distant stage of your pre-transplant cancer or lung cancer specifically. And almost half, 42%, were potentially screen-detectable cancers, lung cancer, skin cancer, colorectal cancer, and breast cancer. There's a lot more to unpack from this paper. They really did, a, I, I thought, a fantastic job just kind of breaking this down and looking at this in a lot of different directions, making the best use of having a very large sample size. And really, it highlights that Having pre-transplant cancer does put you at risk for numerous outcomes after transplant and breaks down some of that granularity as far as, well, if it's further out from your transplant, five or more years, let's say, that seems to be lower risk than if it was a relatively recent cancer within the last two years, as well as have the stage of the cancer, the specific cancer you had pre-transplant seems to affect that risk as well. It's interesting that these weren't necessarily always recurrences of the same cancer type, but it probably just highlights that if you developed cancer pre-transplant, you probably have other risk factors, for example, perhaps perhaps smoking or things along those lines that may just be at higher risk for other cancers. But a lot of this needs to be balanced, as the authors pointed out, with time on the wait list or time not having a transplant. For example, we know from kid, the kidney transplant literature that waiting longer is associated with more poor outcomes, and that needs to be balanced with, well, we like you to be further from your cancer diagnosis, but we also don't want to wait too long. And so finding that nice, fine balance um, is really what we, I think, should strive to do with these type of patients, as well as taking into account their specific risk factors, like the stage of cancer, which cancer it was, and, and things along those lines. So I thought they did a great job really highlighting and tackling this just very challenging issue and giving us a little better data on kind of what's already been recognized as a risk. But some of these specifics um, were really interesting to read and see how they exactly looked at these issues. Yeah, I thought this was really kind of an important paper. I think we really don't have a lot of data that has looked at it, you know, statistically like this. A lot of it in the literature has been kind of expert guidance and you know, sort of almost in a way of saying what what is likely to recur and what is in the setting of immunosuppression. And and here you see increased risk in in different cancers after transplant than than the pre-transplant cancer, um, which is which is also interesting. Um, I wonder, too, that I don't know if you had seen this, but there was a um, consensus conference uh, a few years ago. On, on this topic run by the AST. And I seem to remember it was, it had data, but there was a lot of expert opinion on, and it went through the different malignancies like breast, lung, colorectal, et cetera. I wonder how much it'd be interesting to look back at that paper and see how this, these data might change some of the recommendations or, or influence it. I don't think it was that long ago, a couple, few years ago. But yeah, no, I, you, 
you wonder, I mean, uh, generally what we do and someone with a, with a pre-transplant cancer that is concerning, we, in liver, we tend to try to be lighter on their immunosuppression, but that's not always possible in other organs. And because we, we know liver has some of the highest rates and a lot of it has to do with, um, comorbidities and risk factors such as alcohol use and smoking. But, um, it, you know, I, I, what is the clinical impact of this? It, it certainly gives you real pause in transplanting somebody with, you know, a more recent cancer. And it makes you think about potential different immunosuppressive strategies or surveillance, surveillance approaches after, after transplant. Yeah. And I, and I thought the, the surveillance or at least the, how they termed in this paper screen detectable cancers was an important point. Cause, uh, at least as far as I'm aware, a lot of these same screening recommendations is largely similar to the non-transplant population. Some key differences, but perhaps if you've had certain types of pre-transplant cancers or certain risk factors, perhaps some of these screening should be modified, and that would be a, that would be something to look at in the future. But perhaps you know the out of the quote-unquote screen detectable cancers, lung cancer was the highest risk. Mm-hmm. Perhaps with certain risk factors, even if you don't meet the standard lung cancer screening criteria, perhaps in the transplant population that criteria would ideally be different. And this study didn't look at that in particular, um, but that would be an interesting thing for future studies to kind of take mm-hmm. a look at. Can screening kind of alter these or provide a mortality benefit or bring these people's risk back down to the baseline between people with and without pre-transplant cancers? Well, I, I think that's a good point. I think, however, it's been shown in other epidemiologic studies, mostly the Australia-New Zealand Cancer Registry has shown that the risks of developing cancer in, in chronic kidney disease or, C- or ESKD is highest, mostly in the genital urinary cancers. Um, I guess no surprise, you get cystic degeneration of the kidney. But again, they've that same group has also shown that um, there hasn't been an immediate benefit of, of increased screening. There's no recommendation post-transplant to, say, ultrasound native kidneys of patients with kidney failure which is always I found interesting. So I think it's a complicated question. I also think the span of time that the study encompasses may not, it includes times when treatment was very different. Um, and I wonder if there's, if that has an impact. And I think the, the myeloma thing is really the most interesting because we're transplanting people with myeloma now back in the day when I was a fellow, up until maybe even five years ago, we'd say that was an absolute no. And now we're, we're, we're giving people long-term therapy and treating it like it's prostate cancer, where we would, we've transplanted people with prostate because the, the length of time span after you have disease is very, very long. The mortality rate is, is low relative to the benefit of getting a a transplant. Um, And I agree with you guys about, you know, modification of immunosuppression, I think that's important. But the screening question is really complicated. I, I don't think this paper, uh, I think it gives us a very broad overview of information. I love the way they used all these things. And it, I, I didn't see if there was an editorial or not. But that's right. We did do that paper very, uh, like, it seems like a year ago, but it might have been two recommendations of waiting. And and actually, these two-year and five-year periods sound very, you know, that's kind of what we do. Low-stage, low-grade cancer, we wait two, and then higher-grade, we wait five. 
The other thing they didn't mention is cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, the most frequent post-transplant malignancy of all malignancies. I see they had melanoma, and I'll, I'll have to paw through that some more. But that that was great, Zach. Thanks for those terrific summaries. I guess I better get going because we're yeah, running well, out of time. We need to know the answer to the question. Does anybody really know what the kidney median waiting time is? Can you so yeah, unless you were unless you were born a little bit before 1970, you won't you'll see it's like a play on words to an old Chicago song. <laughs> and I grew up in the 70s, so I remember hearing this on the radio with a lot of trombones and trumpets. So I didn't really realize that there isn't one single site for identifying what the median wait time for a kidney transplant is. But this paper by uh, Darren Stewart, who was at UNOS for a while, now he's at the NYU a transplant data center, uh, but on behalf of the OPTN and, and UNOS, um, really tried to come across with a methodological plan for developing meeting waiting time because of with the increasing need and the demand for transparency in the trans, in the, especially in kidney transplant, but in the field in general, there has to be methods to do this. And they pointed out that in the 2020 SRTRN report for the OPTN that the meeting waiting time wasn't calculated. It said it wasn't calculated for over a decade because less than 50% of the wait list had been transplanted each year since 2009. And I believe that because if you look at the waiting list, it's like 100,000 and we'll do maybe 29, 30,000 if at best kidney transplants. And there is an online OPTN tool where you could plug in your demographics and some other information, but that uses old data from nearly two decades ago, although I was still pretty lively then, young in my career, but but very knowledgeable. So they the, the authors point out that there's several ways you could do it. You could be what we call naive, where you just measure somebody gets in the waiting list and the time they get transplanted and count all that up and that's your meeting waiting time, but it ignores the fact that there are other people there that never got transplanted. So it's not really the true median waiting time because there's no value for the people that haven't gotten transplanted. You know, a time to event analysis like a Kaplan-Meier or Cox makes sense, but you might have to wait years to get that information and maybe ineffective scientifically and clinically. And, you know, there are competing risks. These people die, they get they take, get taken off the list indefinitely, and that's really not part of the estimate. And so, and then there's this notion of using these period prevalent cohorts. You take everybody from 2003 in the waiting list and you follow them. And that suffers from survival bias because who's still in the cohort 10 years from now? It's the people that actually live. And... There are some calculators using competing risks, but it gets so in-depth and maybe difficult and not maybe too specific towards a specific instance. So basically, they take uh, OPTN data from 2003 to March 2020, and they evaluate several different statistical techniques to determine what is median waiting time, noting that all these methods may have issues with their interpretation. And they focus on a primary cohort of 2015 to 2018 to look at the outcomes, and that's shown in table one. They use uh, four methods. They use uh, the method of the naive, like who gets transplanted and who doesn't. A Kaplan-Meier using an incident candidate wait list versus a period prevalent cohort. They do a competing risks model, and then they do one over the transplant rate. And they come up with what seems to be the most reliable model is the Kaplan-Meier period prevalent wait list cohort which identifies a median waiting time for the entire U.S. of about 3.77 years of active waiting time and five total years of being on the waiting list, active and inactive. 
And in their first figure, figure one, they actually show you that up until the 2015 cohort, our waiting times were stable, if not increasing for median waiting time. But they actually went down in 2015, 2018. And we'll talk about why that is. And when they looked at both the incident versus this period prevalent cohort, they had really good correlation. So they relied predominantly on this period prevalent uh, Kaplan-Meier methodology uh, for some of the other data. And they find some interesting relationships. They demonstrate and confirm that AB blood type for kidney transplants has the quickest average median waiting time, which is something we kind of know. So nice to see that the methods were reliable in identifying that. But they also show you all the different methodologies of where the median waiting time might be. Interestingly, they assess recipient ethnicity, and they actually show that regardless of your ethnicity, except if you're Asian, your, your median active waiting time or total time is about the same. And it's interesting that um, when they use that one over transplant rate reciprocal, that didn't work as closely. But this Kaplan-Meier incidence was very similar across all ethnicities except Asians. Why that is, it's not entirely clear to me. So don't ask me. They do show that there is a benefit of being a child and the way our allocation system is set up. The median waiting time for a child is much, much lower significantly than adults. And then they also look in figure six. They line up all these median waiting times for 2015 to 2018 using this Kaplan-Meier periprevalent cohort and show the variation across all these donor service areas, which we've known about for a long time. And finally, they actually utilize this analysis and all these statistical methods to look at CAS 250. So the uh, the creation of the circles of the 250 nautical miles was, was instituted in April 1st, 2021. And they actually show that there is a significant reduction in median waiting time from 2015 if you look at that institution of that allocation scheme. So we went from, I think, about 4.1 year, 4 years on the active waiting time down to 2.9. And we went from 5.2 down to about 3.8 years if you compare it to 2015. So a couple of things. Why did the rate go down in 2015? I think if you look across the last five years, the the, the increase in, in the bolus of, of more deceased donors in the system has taken effect. And I think it's been considerable. There's been about a 40% increase in the number of deceased donors um, compared to that in 2015. It's, it's really gone up fairly dramatically. I think another interesting finding here is the difference between active time and total time. It indicates that about 40% of patients are made inactive. And I think the transparency of what it means to be inactive is going to be something that has is going to be examined as part of the SRTR's task five, which is finding patient-centered metrics, but also something our patients want to find. And I thought it was interesting too that it that it, once you're listed, there was no difference uh, whether you were black, uh, Hispanic, or white, although Asian was much higher. And I think the disparity here in terms of race is is related to getting onto the waiting list. If you can one, get into the hospital to be evaluated, and two, make it to the waiting list. Your chances of, of getting transplanted are very similar. And I think that's an important message so that we can put our action uh, in terms of, of improving the disparities uh, into those areas rather than focusing on the numbers of people getting transplanted. It should really be focused on getting people in, getting them activated as quickly as possible. You know, there's an opportunity here to, you know, we didn't have to wait 10 years to look at the impact of CAS. So 
whether you trust these numbers or not, I think they're extremely reliable. It shows a positive impact. It wasn't a positive impact at my center, but um, certainly a positive impact around the country. And then there's opportunities to and you know add other elements to this median waiting time calculation, like transplant variation and acceptance of organs and, and other decision domains, like what KDPI can you take and or is it deceased versus living donor? So I think um, the discussion's really robust in this paper, and I urge people to read it. You may have to feel uncomfortable with biostatistics, but it's really well written. And yeah. if there are no questions, you have any questions? No, I, no, I don't have any Keep questions. Going. I thought it was interesting. On. It was interesting, uh, but you you gave a really good summary of this complicated kind of um, issue. For and sure. as many of you know, I am not a biostatistician. I only pretend to be one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the la- the next paper is really a viewpoint paper, and I'd urge the reader. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth, but it's by Claire Albert and other colleagues that are predominantly appears to me. And some of them, the names I know, are looking at uh, ex vivo techniques for um, organ normothermic perfusion and other strategies to improve deceased donor quality. It's called Honoring the Gift, the Transformative Potential of Transplant to Kind Human Organs. So when I first opened this paper, I thought it was going to be talking about how discards not the right word and we should be more sensitive, but it actually argues that preclinical research on these clinically declined transplant organs is really within the spirit of the gift of organ donation. And is that that's like one of the central themes of this paper. The other central theme is really the challenges of human organ preclinical research built on, you know, trust and getting donor organs um, built on the rigor and understanding that there's an N equals one and understanding the variability in human research. And there's a terrific kind of discussion on uh, that's based on figure two that compares the different models of transplant research and shows that, yes, the variability in experimental groups in humans is highest, but it also has the high, has a higher adaptability in terms of being applicable to the clinical condition. And they remind us how many failed therapies look great in preclinical models, but failed in human beings. And it's probably related to the variability. They also point out that, you know, there are challenges in doing this kind of research in, 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 in deceased donation. I mean, this is not typically a hospital activity. It's a laboratory activity. You have to have significant infrastructure. You need uh, funding. And, you know, what are the outcome metrics? You know, is it developing a new therapy that's going to be approved by the FDA or understanding a new pathway to be targeted? So a lot of philosophy here, but I don't disagree with it. I mean, I've always been an advocate. I used to be very basic, fundamentally animal cell models, and I still am, but I really do think people are the most complicated, the largest of the large animal models, as one of my uh, ICU attendings would tell me when he'd come and he'd say, what do you know? What are the data? And I don't need to hear about it in cells. Tell me about the largest of the large animals. So a um, couple of things I didn't mention Um you know, one, there is a significant variation in next to kin authorization for research organ usage. Crystal Lentine and I co-authored a paper last year about that and showed that it really varies. The other thing is it varies once OPOs, the 
the processes that they do to authorize a family to donate for research is different across OPOs. There's no set protocol. Some require a separate research authorization. So you're a donor family, you're grieving, you say, okay, I'm going to give my, my family's or members organs up. You may have to sign a second piece of paper that says, okay, if they're not used for transplant, would you authorize for research? And some OPOs go after those consents very effectively and others just say, oh my God, I just got them through this decision. I can't deal with it. Others actually have a checkbox on the form and says, is it okay if we don't use these organs for week? So there's so much, there's variation in that and there's also variation in acceptance. And so I wish that that had maybe been covered a little bit. And finally, you know, it's great to do these ex vivo experiments and, and one of the biggest scientific hurdles that are our editor-in-chief um, and Peter Apt looked into with the Institute of Medicine is, okay, now that we've manipulated these organs, how are we going to translate this and get this into people? And what are all the ethical challenges in terms of consent and such? So it probably was over the word limit. They couldn't do that, but um, I might have to write a letter to the editor when I have a few minutes. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the viewpoint. I mean, it highlights a, a key issue here, right? I mean, this happens a lot. And I think they really outline, you know, the potential strategies and how to address this issue. So I, I really enjoyed it. I don't know, Zach, if you had any thoughts about the paper. Yeah, no, I, I felt very similarly. It really just was highlighting that this is, you know, a, many potential missed opportunities as far as it, as far as moving the field forward. You know, just because an organ isn't necessarily selected for transplant for one reason or another doesn't mean that they can't still give something to the field and kind of move us forward and help the next patient, even if they're getting someone else's organ. So I, I think this highlights a very important issue. And, and again, any of these studies, I, I feel like a lot of these things like these organs that would otherwise not be transplanted, they're really very valuable for a lot of reasons and, and very, you know, as, as much as we talk about how organs themselves are a scarce resource, um, this is another scarce resource for research as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks. And um, I guess we'll uh, finish off with a um, paper I'm going to review, which is really, I think, kind of a seminal document on DCD uh, organ transplantation. So this was a comprehensive review by the ASTS, who held a conference on to to essentially create a set of best practice guidelines for DCD recovery. As we know, there's a, a lot of variability here, and I think the charge was to come up with some guidelines on certain areas where there was more controversy or, or lacking standardization. So a work group composed of members of the ASTS Scientific Studies Committee and Thoracic Organ Transplantation Committee um, reached a consensus on on the on the uh, DCD procurement topics that the recommendations should cover, and you can see the authors here is Chris Kroom is the lead author, but there are many um, uh, very prominent uh, surgeons in the field that are authors on this paper, and and also the um, ASTS Scientific Studies Committee. And so what they did was they um, did a review basically of the literature going back to 1990 up until October 2021, kind of graded the level of evidence and, and recommendations in accordance to the grade system, which is basically rates 
the grade of evidence from one to three and then a strength of recommendation, strong or weak. Um, it's been used a lot as in many of these practice guidelines. And so the surgical group, uh, the ASTS, came up with the following topics that were identified as controversial, lacking standardization, pre-withdrawal preparation, definition of warm, ex- warm ischemic time, DCD surgical technique, combined thoracic and abdominal procurements, and then they did uh, mention at the end on normothermic regional perfusion, which has become a hot topic as, as of recent in, in our field. So rather than go through all of the recommendations, and you can read more of a detailed summary of each of them, the the, the key table is, the, is the, the main table of the paper that goes through uh, the summary of the recommendations. And I just wanted to highlight a few things. You can see it's it's uh, divided by those different areas of, of controversy or lack of standardization. I think if you look at some, a lot of the recommendations are strong, and I imagine this has to do with clinical experience from the surgical uh, review committee. But if you look at the grade of evidence, there is nothing that is grade one, which is, you know, which is the highest level of evidence. The vast majority of the grades are grade three, uh, but there are some grade uh, 2-2, which is kind of a, uh, which is a fair level of evidence. And so some of the things that, that really kind of come out here that are strongly recommended are doing this pre-withdrawal huddle before DCD procedures, using heparin prior to withdrawal of life-sustaining support therapy. Then they clearly go through the need for documentation of the different time points of DCD procurements at each stage of DCD, like withdrawal of life support, when heparin is given, when the oxygen is lower than 70%, when the blood pressure is less than 50, and then timing of circulatory arrest, the incision, the cold flush, cross clamp, et cetera, and then, and then the um, time that each organ is removed from the donor. So very, being very, very specific here is strongly recommended. Um, and then a mandatory wait time, a no-touch time of no more than five minutes was recommended to avoid unnecessary warm ischemic injury. The other thing that was uh, probably the highest level of evidence and strong recommendations were the timing of the from the flush cross-clamp until both hepatectomy and nephrectomy. And in hepatectomy, it was less than or equal to 30 minutes, and nephrectomy less than or equal to 60 minutes. These are all also hypothermic solution, cold preservation solution data. So we're not talking about machine perfusion studies that are more more recent in the last five to 10 years. And then um, they talk a little bit about combined organ transplantation, and uh, but then end with the use of NRP in the United States and really make the point that NRP is considered an acceptable practice available to procure organs from DCD donors in many countries. And it's picking up here in the United States. Very important to separate between abdominal and thoracoabdominal NRP. And um, I thought it was interesting, the expert opinion without any data was strong to avoid terminology such as reanimation, resuscitation uh, when discussing NRP as the terms do not clearly reflect the process of organ recovery from a donor who has already been declared deceased due to hemodynamic arrest. And obviously these are a little bit contentious issues, but I think for, for for clarity here, these patients are DCD. They're considered to have a cardiac death and then um, put on normothermic reperfusion. And they, they 
recommend more specific and less emotionally laden terms such as insight to tissue perfusion or dynamic insight to organ assessment. And of course, the recommend, the last recommendation is that the ASTS and I should mention the AST, we put out a statement too that supports exploring all options to increase organ donations, including uh, NRP that guidelines really need to be developed, including ethical principles, viability assessment, acceptance criteria, and standardization of protocols. So the AST and the ASTS are really aligned here, but this is really a, a, a kind of document that just gives you the, I think the, the overview of the, the main areas of sort of lack of standardization and controversy and gives some guidance here from a real expert group. I wouldn't say that there's anything here that I found to be really surprising or that they're recommending that was different than what I had sort of previously thought about DCD, but it's, it was good that they put this together in a, in a summary in a consensus conference like this, because that, that adds tremendous value to have a bunch of surgeons get together and, and agree on these, on these things and, and provide that uh, data for the readership. So good, good thing to have in your back pocket when you're thinking about DCD and thinking about the different areas that, that could, that need standardization and, and also future future items such as NRP that, and also machine perfusion, which will, does, I think, really change the landscape of some of these recommendations. We just don't have a lot of data data. yet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe 10 years, we'll have the same paper with machine perfusion and it'll uh, be. be Oh, you may be on the podcast, Josh, but I'll be, (laughs) who knows where, not in Florida, but somewhere warm putting my toes in the ocean if we don't have so much global warning there's like no just left. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, I think it was, it's just an amazing undertaking. And again, we, we have to, you know, we have to practice with consistency in order to analyze data. And when we're looking at these big data sets and talking about DCD, sometimes you see, you know, it's hard to know the variability. And, and again, there's a lot of difference as we know in transplant center practice. So this, I think really codified recommendations for the donor teams of how they, this should really be be going forward. So it's excellent. So we had yeah. great papers. We had great papers this time. We did. Yeah. Really nice variety here and no basic science. Didn't have time, but we should put time, a shout yeah. out. Right. That uh, the paper by uh, Hardigan et al. on Tigit, uh, Tigit and uh, I think it's Tigit and Agonism Yes, we just didn't have time. Blockade. We didn't have time for it, but that's step that was an editor's pick. So uh, go take a yes. look at that as well. Great. Well, thank you, Roz and Zach, for great presentations and discussion, and happy new year. And we will see everybody for the next version of AJT Highlights in February. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT Highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com that's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.